Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. It's never going to happen how you think it's going to happen, right? (laughs) And so the sooner you figure out how to let go of that attachment, the more flexible and responsive you can be to move through the opportunities that do arise. Today I'm talking to Susie Hobbs-Baker, the co-founder of the Good Energy Collective. Susie is experiencing communications with particular reference to advanced nuclear policy and governance and is committed to community-centered clean energy adoption. Susie is based in Washington, D.C., with her husband, Ted, and two growing boys. Welcome, Susie, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. So it's lovely to see you and to have this chat. So tell me a little bit about what you were like when you were growing up, because you moved around the world a little bit. But what were the things that sort of caught your attention and gave you energy at that time? I mean, I was very lucky to travel and to see a lot of the world as a child. Um, And I was always very active. I had a ton of energy. And um, the way that my parents sort of coped with that was I was I was enrolled in everything. I was in every sport. I was on swim team. I played basketball. I took Japanese lessons. I took art classes. Um, so I was a very curious kid, and I just, I just sort of wanted to devour the world. Uh, so my dad is a nuclear engineer, and um, he spent his career working at, sort of on nuclear fuel and fuel cycle issues. And so when my brother and I were young and he would have assignments all over the world, they would just pack us up and take us with them, um, which was lovely and um, quite quite the childhood, quite the adventurous childhood to have. So um, you say your, your dad uh, worked in nuclear power because I remember listening to you on one of the TEDx talks that you gave and you told this story about your dad and you and nuclear power stations. Tell us about that. Yeah, so like talking about energy and politics and things like that was really normal in my childhood. And obviously my dad taught us a lot about nuclear energy and physics at a young age. And so it was super normal to me. Um, And when I was in middle school, I think I was about grade seven, we learned about um, sort of environmental issues in one of our um, courses and it talked about nuclear as being like very problematic, you know, having all of these negative impacts. And um, that was a part of the story that wasn't on my radar yet. And so I went home and I was like, dad, it seems like there's a lot more going on here. What are you doing at work? And, you know, what's going on with these nuclear plants and are they harming the environment? And, um, and it's, it's so interesting because I still work on these questions today in my career in so many ways. But um, I'm, I'm an experiential learner and he knew that then and he packed me up. You know, we went to Georgia Tech and I grew up in primarily in Atlanta. And so we went and got a Geiger counter, checked it out from the nuclear engineering department there, drove up to the Oconee Nuclear Station in South Carolina, you know, relatively nearby. And he w- he just 
coached me on how to check the environment for radiological contamination so that I could see for myself that the plant really wasn't causing any harm. And, you know, that plant is so beautiful. It sits on this big, beautiful lake with these like million dollar um, vacation homes and things. And so it was just a really uh, formative experience to see how the technology could be in community in a way that was very symbiotic. It, it wasn't problematic. Um, you know, folks love to fish near the hot water discharge there at the plant. So, I mean, there's just a lot of proximity and, and obviously no releases of, of radiation into the environment. So that was a, um, a good lesson and, and got me interested in this issue for the first time. You must have had this sort of question as you were going through school around, am I going to study science and be a, a nuclear scientist like my dad or a nuclear engineer? Or, um, but you seem to gravitate more into the sort of artistic side of things. So there was a lot of pressure to study engineering, as you might imagine. Um, and my mom is a social worker. So I also had a deep interest in the social sciences and the humanities. And um, But I also, I got really into art at a young age. I mean, I think in elementary school, I was already taking art courses outside of school. And by the time I was in high school, I was quite committed to it. I knew which art school I wanted to go to. I, I just had a very clear vision of what I wanted my education to be. And I actually think it has served me really quite well because the arts are about problem solving. Um, it's, it's about developing you know, specific skills, but it's also a way of understanding the world. It's its own epistemology in a way. So, so you did do that and you studied fine art at the Appalachian State University. Um, tell me what you sort of learned about yourself as a person during that time, because it's a real formative time in your life, isn't it? It is, yeah. So I, I grew up in the southeastern US and have just a very um, strong sort of affinity for the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and I, I actually was, you know, the third generation of, of folks in my family to attend Appalachian State University. And um, they have a great fine art program. Um, and, and so I just, I, like I said, I had this very like tunnel vision about getting there and about doing this work. And there's a long history in that region of, um, of craft, of woodworking, of ceramics. Um, there's actually kaolin in, in the mountains there that they mine um, to create pottery. Uh, and then there's also contemporary art traditions in the region as well. And so it's just a really rich place to learn. And there's just such strong connectivity to the culture and to the land and to the place and, and to my own personal history. Um, and so I think what happened was that interest in science and environment and climate change all came into my work in a new way. That all of these separate interests that I'd had all my life, I realized weren't separate. Um, and I was able to piece together a really interdisciplinary education um, where I wasn't just studying art, I was taking biology courses, I was taking anthropology courses. I was really digging into some of these questions about 
environment and place and how we care for our world. That's amazing. And, and, and you did a project there which seemed to connect the art with contaminated environments as well. So actually in your work, you were bringing these things together in um, a very creative way, but to have an impact on, on people. Yes. So in my studies, I became really interested in an artist named Mel Chin, who he just last year received a MacArthur Award. So he's he's been recognized in the art world as a, as a genius for a long, long time. And now I think is being more broadly recognized for his really different and incredible way of thinking about the role that artists are meant to play. And Mel really believes that artists are inherently problem solvers and that our role is to engage with the world, policymakers, scientists, and real problems, and to get ourselves into the mix and to help move things forward in a positive way. Um, and at that time, shortly after I got out of school, I was very lucky to receive an apprenticeship with him, um, which like when Mel Chin calls and offers you a job, it was like, I still think about that day. <laughs> it was such an incredible, unexpected moment. And um, I did a year long apprenticeship with him on a project where he was working in post Katrina, New Orleans, as they were working to rebuild the city. And he um, realized that even before the storm, there had been just this really incredibly horrible lead contamination issue in the city. Um, and it, it wasn't washed away by the storm. It stayed in the soil and in the houses and in some places it, it concentrated further. And in rebuilding the city, you know, we were faced with like, how do we actually now finally deal with this blood problem? Um, and, and then, you know, through the work and research that he was doing in New Orleans, we realized that this isn't just a New Orleans problem. This is everywhere. This is in Brooklyn. This is in Detroit. This is in Sacramento. Um, there are cities all across the U.S. that have similar issues. And, and you know, years later, obviously, this would become a big national dialogue. So he was really quite ahead of the times and, and looking at this. Um, and so my role was actually to work with children in community that were impacted by lead contamination and use art to give them the tool belt to protect themselves. Um, so it's like this real present risk and um, there isn't necessarily training in schools or places for lead safety. And so we were providing that and it was very eye-opening and um, just an incredible formative experience for me. Yes. So in doing that, were you sort of sitting down with the children and using art to communicate with them or were you helping them to express themselves through art? How was that sort of working practically? Yeah, so um, the, there was a specific curriculum and the kids made what were called hundreds and they were they were hundred dollar bill templates and um we provided a background a, an age appropriate background on the issue of lead contamination and safety and the kids colored in um their faces or you know they, their response to that lesson in the dollar bill and we collected hundreds of thousands of these drawings from kids all over the country 
Um, and actually just a few years ago, they finally realized their destination and they were, they were taken to Congress <laughs> as a part of a policy push to say, these are the kids who are being impacted. These are their voices, these are their faces, these are their drawings. Do right by them and implement you know, federal legislation that's going to fund the cleanup of this lead contamination. Um, the idea that it's on these kids to stay safe from their own environment is bananas. That's not how we should be approaching this problem, right? Um, so yeah, and and um, Nancy Pelosi came. I mean, it was a beautiful event, and we had an armored vehicle <laughs> deliver them, just you know, to emphasize the value of these children and their voices. Um, so yeah, and and so that performance art piece was. Um, it was really beautiful, and thankfully, you know, I'm I'm still quite in touch with this crew and was able to attend. So, um, seeing that come full circle was pretty remarkable. So, um, when you when you left university, you, you sort of followed this sort of theme, didn't you, with setting up uh, Pop Atomic Studios and the Nuclear Literacy Project, a, a sort of non-profit organization. How did you come up with that idea, and, and what were you sort of hoping to achieve through that? Yeah, so working with Mel, I learned this blueprint for sort of community level education and activism and how you set up an organization to do that and what programming can look like. And at that point, I sort of knew that my passion was around climate change and um, and specifically integrating nuclear into the climate response and broadening the nuclear sector to be more inclusive that stuff was already really sort of formed in my mind. Um, and so I actually, I mean, I was very lucky to be a part of the arts community and I had a lot of guidance from, um, you know, a mentor who was a small business owner. And I mean, 25 years old, I just didn't know better. I just stood up a business and just thought I can do this. And so I did. <laughs> so what, were there any sort of standout moments during that time that, that, that you can bring to mind? Yeah, I mean, it was really scary. And, um, and I think I made plenty of mistakes. <laughs> but, but I think that the that I spent six years doing that work. And I think what I realized was that there was a real white space that I had discovered, that this idea of um, really being in community with folks, really understanding the dynamics of nuclear host communities, whether they be energy, waste, um, other parts of the fuel cycle, you know, it just matters so much. And, and sometimes we just treat these as technology questions and they aren't just technology questions. Um, and so I think for me, as much as I was maybe doing a little bit of good, I think it was still an education in many ways. It was really me learning how the technology existed in space and in place. And I started to see patterns that shape how I understand the technology today. I started to see that some communities get a lot of benefits of nuclear, like the Oconee plant, beautiful lake houses, beautiful, well-paying jobs. And other communities do not get those same benefits. Some communities are dealing with mines that have a history of contaminating their drinking water and provide not great jobs that you know, may have caused harm in the past. Um, our practices in mining now are obviously much better, but there are some legacy issues that remain unresolved. 
Um, there are facilities that do weapons and waste processing. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Savannah River site in South Carolina in community there. There are a lot of marginalized communities in that region that have been impacted by environmental issues there. The um, sort of diversity inclusion, like with regard to risk and benefits, um, it, it doesn't look great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think I started to see the issue with more nuance and um, nuclear is not unique in, in this either, right? Almost all industries have these sort of difficult histories to contend with. And I think many industries are doing that now, thankfully. But I just started to see it as a more complicated issue than I initially thought. Yes, and that that, that development of, of wider understanding, and as you say, always sort of taking off the rose-tinted spectacles to see more reality up close is a really important part of, of your development, isn't it, and understanding. And, but how amazing to have something like that that you're the sort of right person in the right time who can understand and communicate between all of these different communities from policymakers through to industrial players through to local communities and bring those together through your communications and artwork. Some of those other stakeholders are a lot harder to convene with and to convince to, to be open to new ways of doing things. But I, I would say my experience of working on the ground with communities is that they are sort of the most open stakeholders and the most engaged, they have the most to lose, you know. So after that time, you then moved to Idaho, to the Idaho National Laboratory. Um, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to, to make that move, because it's a big move, isn't it, even within the US? It's a long way. <laughs> it's a long way from anywhere. Um, and what were you doing there? Yeah, so I got to the point of like, getting quite good at community engagement, I started getting job offers, which was amazing. And, um, and I realized that trying to go it alone was just naive, right? I mean, it was a great way to learn and I have no regrets about it, but I wanted to be a part of a team and, um, and to start to think more sort of large scale and systemically about some of these issues. And my, my longtime mentor, Todd Allen, and I, had been having a dialogue for a long time about the need for community engagement, not outside of the nuclear sector, but within it, because it's a, it's a group of people who are so smart and so educated and absolutely stubborn, and they will just battle each other <laughs> and not move forward as a sector. And so he wanted me to put the skills that I had developed to use in designing a series of workshops where we could bring together stakeholders from across industry, um, government, academia, regulatory space, and bring everybody together for a few days and like talk this out. Like, what is our future <laughs> as a sector? What do we need to do? How do we do it? Where are there areas of agreement that we can move forward on? And so that was that was what ultimately attracted me to accept the job was there was a project that I felt was really meaningful and potentially really impactful. So you, so you were there and how, how did that sort of project go and bringing all those different perspectives together? I ran a big digital campaign and we did a big press push. We got a bunch of national press. We went viral on Twitter 
And within a matter of months, um, the recommendations coming out of that workshop served as the foundation for the Gateway for Accelerated Innovation in Nuclear, which was a new federal program under the Obama administration aimed at the commercialization of advanced reactors. Um, so we went from concept to workshop to paper to um, program and uh, a year or less. And then I was very lucky to go from Idaho to DOE to assist in sort of standing it up. That's fantastic. It's so good to be able to look back and see things uh, and the impact of what you were doing in something real and tangible that's happened as a result, isn't it? It's, it is. It's remarkable. And then you see it, what they've accomplished to date, and it's it's quite impressive. And I don't get credit for that, right? Um, a lot of other really great people have come in and, and done incredible things with that program. So I'm really interested in this sort of period, uh, including time in the US uh, DOE, Department of Energy. Do you think that you were learning, and I think about yourself and what you were learning about yourself, because you started in fine arts, you'd sort of brought that together with environmental issues, but now you're coordinating and bringing together lots of people. So you must have learned people skills, you must have realized that you had an ability to see things from other perspectives and enable people to talk and understand each other? Yeah, I mean, I think I um, have been and continue to be optimistic enough to go into conflicts <laughs> and feel like I can help. And, um, and I don't know what that is. And, and Certainly, I've read some books on conflict management, but I think it, it is also a weird just affinity of like wanting to help de-escalate conflict. I, I don't want people to suffer. I don't want people to remain at odds with each other. I, I really love cooperation and <laughs> coordination and people learning to work together. All of that really brings me a lot of, of satisfaction. Yes. And how do you do that when you're sort of in between two seemingly opposing views or people don't see things from the other perspective? How, how does it, there, mo there must be moments that you can think of where you were in that sort of situation caught between, you know, these two sides pulling each other apart, but you were somehow able to bring things together. So one example actually comes from the next part of my career, which was when I, I transitioned to Third Way, which is a, a national think tank um, that does really phenomenal work on advanced nuclear policy. And um, one of the big things I saw in the federal government that I was very concerned about and that helped shape sort of this next phase of work for me was um, the sort of, I don't, I want to say tension. It's not active conflict, but tension between the nuclear energy and the nuclear security communities. Um, I had learned sort of just culturally absorbed this idea that nuclear energy has been inhibited by environmentalists somehow, like that, that activism was the big thing holding back nuclear energy. And then what I found out was that actually the lack of coordination between the security folks and the energy folks has much more real world impact with regard to our ability to move forward it just is it's it's structural it's policy based it's like when we talk about why prices are high or why um 
like we are not flexible or responsive as a sector like it actually has a lot more to do with just sort of like these bureaucratic gridlocks that exist um and so the next big project that i stood up and this is like kind of a theme of my career too i love standing up new things it's like a passion um and i don't necessarily want to be in charge i i want to think about how you structure it who needs to be there who needs to lead it and and like put it in place and then be like go be free um <laughs> Um, so this is sort of another one of those experiences where I, I, I saw the problem. I knew I didn't have the complete skill set to tackle it. Um, and so I partnered with Ambassador Laura Holgate, um, who was passionate about the same question, but was sort of coming from the other side. I was more on the energy side and she was more on the security side. And we sort of convened as individuals on our passion for this conflict. <laughs> or resolving this conflict. And we stood up a program that basically aims to bridge these communities and, and to create avenues, formal and informal, for cooperation and to think through how specifically advanced reactors can address these security concerns more holistically, more directly, and with input from that community versus this old model of like the engineers build the energy system, then the security and safeguards people come in and they're like, this is a mess. And then they have to kind of like patch together their security approach. And it could have been baked in if that collaboration had happened, you know, like four steps earlier, <laughs> it could have been an inherent sort of piece of that puzzle. And instead it's not. And like, you know, that's where the gridlock starts. Um, so yeah, so that's, I think, a pretty good example of, of my thinking around some of these conflicts and, and how to resolve them. And, and that actually is really demonstrative of the fact that doing that type of work is slow. Mm. Mm. It is. Right? It it's is. just really slow. Yes, yes. And because it's as much about culture and structural you know, factors around organizations and who's responsible for this and who's responsible for that. And they kind of, we talk about silos a lot, you know, we, we sit in our silos and we don't interact across. And so I think the people that can, uh, uh, are comfortable enough to step outside of their silo and bring these things together are very powerful and needed at the moment, because that's how the changes will come, I think. I think that's why I like my artist hat is that I'm an outsider inherently. Um, I'm never really in an in-group and and that's important to not fall into any in-group but to, to maintain that outsider-y sort of perspective. Yes, um, you, you can be objective and independent can't you and, and, and say it how you see it. I can try. I mean, no, I think we all do our best, right? I'm sure I have plenty of my own biases, but yeah, I mean, I, I try to stay sort of flexible and on the edges. Yeah, that's fantastic. So tell me about the latest initiative, the, the Good Energy Collective that I think you just set up during lockdown over the summer. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Why did we do that? <laughs> one job wasn't enough. Yes. So I'm so lucky to have my day job now at University of Michigan. 
Um, so I've been there for a couple of years and doing a bunch of really cool geospatial mapping and thinking through a more socio-technical approach to energy deployment. And in that process, I a, a couple of important things happened. The Green New Deal happened, right? And, um, and then obviously this most recent election cycle happened in the US. And um, a big piece of what's been happening in the political sphere in the US is that nuclear has long been the domain of the sort of right wing of the party of Republicans, of hierarchical folks who, you know, have these like big investor owned plants and, and, you know, there's just like a really certain specific way of doing it. And there's a really clear base of support around the technology for years and years and years. And I would say in the last 10 years, and especially in the last five years, because of the climate crisis, we've seen a lot of moderates and Democrats start to go, oh, we do need our nuclear plants and we don't have good options in, in the pipeline to replace them when they're done. And we need to like get back to work on this problem in a new context. Um, it's not just about reliability or cost, it's about um, climate. And so we've seen this coalition grow by leaps and bounds. And then when the Green New Dealers came onto the scene with just such energy and magnetism and passion, and they don't have the same baggage of the environmental movement. The, the climate movement and these young folks, and I obviously relate to this, they don't have anything to lose. <laughs> they are just whole hog on climate and, and equity, and they're thinking interdisciplinarily, and they are coordinated, and they are egalitarian. I mean, I just, I love the Gen Z kids. I don't know how else to say it. And that to me signaled that like, oh my gosh, there's an opening for nuclear to actually like close the political spectrum, to, to appeal to young progressives, to do it right, to align its way of doing business with the sort of values of this movement and, um, and to basically depoliticize nuclear, to make it so that we have broad support across the political spectrum and we can utilize nuclear in a whole bunch of different ways, different ways for different folks, right? New technologies in communities, micro reactors, big light water reactors where they still work. Um, and, and it's like that level of flexibility that we've been lacking to be responsive, you know? And so Good Energy Collective was the product of just seeing that opportunity and wanting to join up and say we are in this with you and we will follow you like we're not leading this movement we will learn from the young people we'll take their values seriously we'll take um their future seriously and we will rethink this technology for like the, the way that you <laughs> that you need it right um so that was really the thinking there it, it is fantastic and actually a lot of the young people i talk to um they've got huge motivation to make a difference for the planet you know and and that's one of their drivers to work in energy sector nuclear sector renewables and so on it's it, it it's not just about just getting a job these days it's about why am i doing this job and they've got a really clear focus the ones i speak to it's amazing it's lovely they have so much on the line 
right? I mean, they're inheriting such a mess. And, um, and I do think that we have sort of a moral obligation to do everything we can to support them and help sort of reshape the world in their image yes. and not just in our own. So Susie, I'm going to take you back to that uh, girl who went into the nuclear power station with her dad and a Geiger counter, <laughs> went in, did all the measurements in and around and came out again. If you could perhaps just whisper one little bit of advice to her to set her on her pathway, what, what do you think would be your advice? Let go of attachment to specific outcomes. Keep an eye on the sort of changing landscape and and sort of your your compass straight towards your mission and let go of, you know, it it's never gonna happen how you think it's gonna happen, right? <laughs> and so the sooner you figure out how to let go of that attachment, the more flexible and responsive you can be to move through the opportunities that do arise. Oh, that's fantastic. Susie, it's been so good to talk to you. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Oh, thanks again, Andrew. So glad to chat with you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.